we use these like metrics as proxies of like, oh, user engagement is is good, is high. So that means everyone's loving our product, right? But then when you think about some of the, the products that have really high engagement, like cigarettes have great engagement, great retention. And it's not because it's a phenomenal product by any means. And so we in, in design and in tech, we borrow a lot from this kind of like behavioral economics school of thought where we, we actually apply these practices and it's normalized and it's encouraged. And we're like, yeah, we should totally change the way that people decide on things. Welcome to Up Next in Tech, a podcast diving into emerging innovations and experiences beyond the hype. Through exclusive conversations with the brilliant people exploring the intersection of emerging tech, responsible innovations, and how we live, play, and interact. I'm your host, Ariba Jahan. My guest today is Catherine Zhou, a senior product designer who created the Design Ethically Toolkit that helps teams forecast the ethical consequences of their products. She's also working on her master's degree exploring AI, ethics, and society at Cambridge University. On this episode, Catherine provides thoughtful perspectives on AI, from the hype to overlooked human labor behind automated systems to the unintended harm. We discuss building tech responsibly, the role of regulation, and her hopes for community-driven innovation. Let's dive in. Today we have Catherine Zhou. She wears many, many hats. She's a master's student at the University of Cambridge, dialing in, zooming in from Stockholm. And she's also the creator of Design Ethically, but really, really excited to have you here, Kat. Thank you so much for making the time for this. Thank you for having me, Ariba. It's so nice to be on this podcast. It's summer in Stockholm, and I've been living here for three and a half years. So basically, when summer comes around, you forget the dismal nature of the rest of the year, <laughs> which is the true Stockholm syndrome when you're like, oh, it's actually nice to be here. I love this place. It's not like it's cold nine months of the year. <laughs> <laughs> like you just forget all yeah. of that. <laughs> so I completed a master's in artificial intelligence, ethics, and society, and it's really fascinating because it's the inaugural program that they had on this topic and it was hosted by the Lieberhulme Center for the Future of Intelligence. And mm. I've always been really keen on ethics, whether it was in design or just in general. And I've been curious about AI as well. And so this is like a cool marriage of, of disciplines. It was fascinating to be part of it. Backing up a little bit, tell us your origin story. I think it's really interesting. So, um, yeah, I, I think for me, if I had to like really sum up who I am, I would, first of all, I would say I am the eldest daughter in an immigrant family. <laughs> I think that says a lot about me. I My parents moved to the U.S. when they were in their 20s to go to grad school and they moved to Minnesota of all places. So that's where I was born. I grew up there with my siblings and ended up having a lot of curiosities when I was a kid. And when I went to university, I, I thought I would actually be a lawyer. So I started out like the whole pre-law track and I feel like any kid that's like, I want to be a lawyer was probably a little bit of an asshole when they were a kid. Um, but I, <laughs> I, I was like, I'm really argumentative. Like, I love this. Um, when I want to prove to them that I have the receipts to be <laughs> Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I was in the whole like, public policy ethics path for a while in undergrad, but then realized I actually missed the creative side as well. And so I switched to design, like visual arts, halfway through my college years. And I ended up graduating with that. And that I think kind of explains how I started the Design Ethically Project because you know, I went into design super excited about it. And that was back when 
the way that we talked about tech and design in universities in the U.S. was still very much shaped by this like neoliberal logic of like, yeah, tech is the best. Like it's going to solve all these problems. Tech is going to revolutionize the world. There's this episode in Silicon Valley. I think it's like the first episode when they're at the TechCrunch festival or Disrupt conference or whatever. And it's all these startup kids going on stage and being like, I have an app that's going to solve this, 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 this. And nowadays, when we we look at that, we're like, that's so unrealistic. But that's actually like, I think that's what we were taught in some ways when I was in uni. Um, it's just this really positive outlook on the industry, on, on what design could do, on what engineering could do. And it led to this kind of ethos of move fast, break things, you know, yada, yada, yada. And over the years, we realized in the industry, we can't actually do this. And this like techno solutionism like idea doesn't work because it actually has disastrous consequences sometimes. And it was through my my love of like, you know, the humanities and ethics and policy and stuff combined with my love for design that I, I started this this project. I was really curious about what it meant to actually bring ethics into the design process to interrogate what we were doing as designers and how we made things. So yeah, that's that's me in that realm. As for where I am right now, I'm in Sweden. Uh, I moved here three and a half years ago by accident because I thought I applied to another office in New York City, but ended up applying here. And it was a very happy accident. That pivot you made from law to design, right? I know around that time you realized like that's what you wanted to switch into. But what was that moment that told you like that's the switch you wanted to make? There, that's a great question. There was actually a book and it, it was called Excellent Sheep by William. I'm going to butcher the last name. Derezuik. And I had read this book in college, actually, right before, it was like the year before I switched. And it was a critique of the way that American elite universities, a lot of like private universities, but also state schools as well, have completely transformed their education into this. It was very noticeable. You had kids that were either going to become consultants, investment bankers, pre-law track, pre-med track, comp sci folk, and then like a handful of other liberal arts kids or whatever that went and became a journalist. But the, the majority of students went in some of those first fields that I noted. And his point is that like these schools are just creating these paths and, and creating these expectations that this is what you have to do to become successful. And this is what you want to strive for as you go to university and, and proceed after you graduate. And we had so many career fairs and we had like talks with the, the career office or whatever it was called. And it was such a big thing on our minds all the time. You were yeah. constantly getting ready for interviews, for internships, let alone, you know, not even just jobs. I remember I had an interview process with LinkedIn when I was in college. I didn't get the job. I didn't get the internship. I mean, but I had seven interviews for an internship. It was so intense. And, you know, of course, not all of it is to blame on the universities that they also have a lot of outside factors like the companies themselves. Well, it perpetuates, it right? Perpetuates. Like one, yes. one organization does it and then it somehow becomes like that's the best practice now so now we're all going to do this you know yes. and and no one actually checks it nope. and if there's even a voice that says hey I don't think this should be 
a best practice, usually that voice is silenced by everyone else who's like, no, well, this organization does it, so it must be. Exactly. And I, I remember like all the, the events that they'd have at university where they'd invite, oh, this person worked at McKinsey. They're going to come back and give us a talk about how they you know, succeeded in life. And it was all these like business organizations that would kind of reinforce this, but also like professors who would bring back like, you know, people that had worked and climbed up the industry in, in these like huge corporations. And it was seen as this idolized pathway, right? And so the author of this book is kind of criticizing that and saying like, and pointing to the fact that education should really be about like learning to see differently and to, and to just like hold different truths in your mind and to, to really embrace things that you're not familiar with, to like think about the world and different epistemologies in, in various ways, as opposed to like packaging us all into these worker bees and sending us off into like the corporate world or whatever whatever field it is, right? When I read his words, I was so struck by that because I really did feel like a lot of my childhood was kind of crafted around conforming to that kind of narrative. And even from like when I was in high school. The immigrant mindset, right? Yeah. Like it's, it aligns almost too perfectly, but you're first generation, right? Yeah. So you absorb all the immigrant mindsets from your yes. family yeah. yeah and it's I understand where it comes from for them because it's like a, it's a thing of safety it's like okay this is how you can at least financially be safe in the society is to go down these pathways so I understand that but it's it's one of those things when you realize like education should be way more than just how to make six figures after you graduate how have you redefined what success looks like for you because I think like that's been something that's been a very personal journey of mine where even if my parents weren't telling me explicitly this is these are the metrics of success we plan to measure you by mm -hmm. you can kind of tell by the language they use and by what they say to relatives the metrics of success that they're evaluating themselves by mm -hmm. and is closely tied to the success of like what I'm able to do in my career right as a result of immigrating so I'm curious like from your upbringing and then this you know this sense of awareness that you've built what is your redefined definition of success my wake-up call was when I realized how gravely unhappy I was trying to follow that path and that moment of unhappiness I think there were two moments one of them was after my first year in college when I had been like working so hard to fit this kind of narrative and I was absolutely burnt out. And the second time it happened was right after college was when I like had taken a job that had followed the path like that everyone goes. And I realized like, this isn't it for me. Like everyone's been, you know, saying this is the thing that you should do. And I hated it. <laughs> so I think that's, that's a, like, you know, a good pulse check is like, are you happy following this successful path that everyone talks about? And if you're not, then it's not success for you. And so in terms of like figuring out what was success for me, I think that just came a lot from just introspection and also a lot of inspiration from other writers and, and activists and people who have pondered these questions in history that maybe are not you know, your quote unquote mainstream or stereotypically successful person, these colleges or whatever society talks about, right? And and so I, I got a lot of inspiration from people that had been doing like community organizing and people that are, are fighting for a cause that are, is just 
it's bigger and more meaningful than just like their paycheck or their resume or whatever. I think that's really inspiring to me. And I, I think for me, when I think about what is successful or what is fulfilling, at least, I, success is a very grating word to my ears. But what is fulfilling is like finding that kind of community that you can contribute to and that you can help out with helping the underdog, fighting for, for people, fighting for vulnerable people. I think that is something that is what drives me. And I think it drives a lot of people. You know, I think that's an instinct that we all have and we often are taught to minimize over time. But I think we we all have that instinct inherently and we just need to like remember it and tap into it. And there's so many inspirational folks to, to look after and to, to kind of like follow. You know, what you just said really hit a chord with me, like the fact that that is the desire to help others and especially the underdogs or those that are already under-resourced or underserved. It's like that is an instinctual thing. I think what society and capitalism really has done is that like that is a nice to have, mm-hmm. right? Similarly to like what we've seen done to like any careers that are in the realm of business, quote unquote business, you know, traditional you know, McKinsey suit business versus everything else that's like arts or creative expression, those all get treated as nice to haves or a hobby. You know, and I think we keep seeing this perpetual pattern that kind of keeps people being that worker bee, what will sustain and provide and profit capitalism versus everything else. If it doesn't have a direct tie-in to capitalism, it feels like it gets shunned to the side. And to your point, you know, it becomes the burden falls on people to like self-educate, to self-discipline, to understand like, how do I use my voice in the rooms that I'm in, at the tables that I have the privilege to sit at, to advocate versus people in positions of power are not often asking those same questions, furthering this perpetual pattern of needing to constantly advocate, right, for the most vulnerable. I'm curious, how do your parents describe what you do? (laughs) <laughs> that is an excellent question. I don't think they really know. Um, I, I don't think they have a clear grasp on what I do, but that's okay. <laughs> Less questions. <laughs> that's funny. I think only now my mom, she's heard me say certain words enough times so that she knows how to mirror the words, but not in the right context. So like she says things like, so how is Web3? Like it's a person. <laughs> and, and you know, you know, how, how are they doing? You know, and, it's, and to me, that's close enough. I'm like, that's great that we can, I can still answer this question. We can work with that. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, so I know that you said you, you're pretty much wrapping up your masters right you, yeah you, so i know there isn't a day that we don't see generative ai in the headlines and i'm sure like when you first started your master's program you had no idea this was about to happen and maybe you or maybe you did i would just love to hear like being someone who's deep in it from a studying perspective and understanding the implications perspective like what's your take on generative ai right now yeah that's a really really interesting topic at the moment and the way that i kind of see it is through just this like lens of exploitation and how much exploitation is happening through these programs, right? Because the way that these models are working is that they're being trained on a lot of data, right? And this data often that is training these models is frequently obtained just by stealing them. 
you know, like when you think about the, the generative like art programs and, and like the things that are creating these beautiful images and, and you're like, wow, how do they make this Baroque painting or whatnot? It's because they've taken all these Baroque paintings that actually do exist and just fed that into the model. And they are doing this with artists who have posted their work on, you know, art sites like Dribbble and, and whatnot. And these artists, they are not getting compensated for this normally. And they're scraping like a variety of different platforms uh, for this kind of content. So they're not getting compensated for it. Oftentimes they don't even know that they've been stolen from in that sense until they see like a trending piece that someone's tweeted about and they're like, what? That looks exactly like my thing. And it's funny because sometimes like you can even, they, some of these models will spit out an image and you can even see like fragments of an artist's signature that's been all jumbled up. And so it's, it's interesting because it's like, this is work that has been done, that is being fed through to this model and is is generating this like image that people are probably paying for. Um, I know a lot of apps are charging money for this and none of the money is going back to the original artists that did the labor that was fed into the model. And so there's this whole like obscuring of the work that they did and they're not getting rightfully compensated. It's also like, how do you compensate that? Right? Like if, unless you're like explicitly saying, Hey, can I get art from you? And I'll pay you this much. Like if you're just scraping things, like there's, you know, it's really hard to, to follow up with everyone that you've just taken stuff from. So I think that's something that we really have to interrogate is just like, are we going to allow these companies to do that? Um, and it's not just artwork from artists that they're taking. They're taking like social media posts. So stuff that we've written, that we've tweeted, that we've put on whatever platforms, like that is also being used to train things as well. And it makes you wonder, it's like, are you comfortable with that being fed into these to these up models? Even like when you're, when you're interacting with like ChatGPT, for example, the stuff that you're typing in, that can also be used as well. So it's a very gnarly, messy field for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the work towards generative AI has been going on for like eras. It just so happens that only recent years it's been distributed to the masses where now everyone has a new vocabulary and a new tool and they don't even know what questions to be asking or what questions to be thinking about. Could you break down like what's the simplest way someone can understand what generative AI is? I would say it's any kind of like deep learning program takes an input like data that could be text images whatever and learns off of those existing images or, or that input in order to be able to spit something out that's quite similar and so it's it's almost like it's a pattern based like type of logic in that sense and it's fascinating because you know i think a lot of times when we talk about it in like the common vernacular we, we think about it as a very like oh it's very magical and it gets marketed as this very magical thing but it is actually just taking stuff from what exists around us and it is very real in that sense and so i think when we're thinking about who owns, you know, the IP that comes out of this stuff, that's when this kind of, these kinds of questions come into play. So what's happening is these tech platforms or these tech organizations, they're creating systems that's able to scrape all that's available on the internet and then learn off of those and then create algorithms based off of that learning models and then the way that we interact with it is we might put in a prompt into ChatGPT and we see an output. That output is based on what that model was able to learn from what already exists. And so what Kat is saying, that part isn't necessarily magic, even though it feels like magic. What it's doing is that it did 
it's the chat GPT or the machine itself did its due diligence that it was trained to do is learn off of existing work that other people have created. And even though what looks like an output, a magical output to us was actually a result of labor done by many, many other people that we're not able to credit or trace back to, right? So uh, this question around IP and ownership, you know, we we know like there is a few different lawsuits that are in the process that are in the works right now that has to do with like ownership and like figuring out who does own it. And I, is it the original artists? Is it the person who create the, created the prompt? Is it the technology? And how do you even have shared ownership? And I know when we were talking earlier, uh, you talked about policies and how EU how EU policies or EU's approach to tech regulation is so different from the US. Like, I frankly just don't know that much about the policy differences. We'd love to hear from you. Like, what are you noticing? So I'm not a legal expert by any means, uh, but just having lived over here, seen how when I go onto my phone in the EU, my user experience is very different from when I used to go on my phone back in the States. First of all, there's cookie banners everywhere. Like every site you go onto, you have to exit out of this banner that's like, are you okay with cookies? And as far as I could recall, that wasn't a thing in the States. Um, now it is. Now it for, is. For, okay. Yeah. Now it is. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. That was, um, I noticed that like three and a half years ago when I moved over here and I was like, this is, it was a lot. It was very overwhelming to, to go and see that on every site, but I guess the, the intent behind it was in the right path. And I also noticed like, for example, some apps like on, I think it's Instagram. I don't have some of the functionality that is available to users in the U S um, oh, and there okay. are specific things that I can't do. Like I, I think around like messaging or something. It, it's interesting. I remember Instagram had a little notice banner a while back saying, hey, because you are a user in the EU, you cannot actually access this feature. We can read this FAQ for more information. Uh, and it was basically explaining like that there was a certain law that this feature did not really pass in the EU. What feature was it? Something with messages and like responding to certain I, I don't remember exactly it was something that didn't really matter that much to me but yeah it's it's interesting and I think like having you know spoken a lot about like deceptive design patterns and manipulative design patterns I've noticed for example in the EU these patterns that are really annoying and prevalent on like all of our e-commerce sites our games you know a lot of shopping our ads and stuff these are incorporated like they're they're acknowledged in like for example the digital service Act in the EU, uh, which is pretty new and it's going to be like fully applicable in May this year. I mean, and these patterns, like they have been kind of acknowledged in the US, like for example, by the Federal Trade Commission over there, but there hasn't been that kind of same like sweeping law that's been passed about that. And I think from what I can tell, like the US is very much kind of like this hands off, has this hands off approach where they're like, okay, we don't want to stifle innovation. So we're just not going to do that much regulation because our companies need to be like very competitive and yada 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 whereas in europe they're a lot more okay with just being quite strict about this is not allowed this is an infringement on like your right to privacy or this is an infringement on your right to transparency or whatever so we're gonna ban this and if you fail to comply you're gonna get fined a lot of money and we've seen a lot of like big tech companies pay those fines because of their violations in Europe and even like around AI as well like I, it's funny because I think China just released some of their AI policies a month ago or something and they were actually stricter than the ones 
that America has. Like, I mean, America doesn't have that much, and it's just interesting to see how how lax it is in the states. And that actually is a bit of a problem as well because it's like these companies that we you know use and, and the, the products that we use from these companies they're being used in all different continents and all different markets. So it's not like they're just used in the states, right? American tech companies their products are being used in Europe and Asia and yada yada yada. And so it's like when when there's this like when one region is regulated in this kind of lax way and another is in this more stringent way that poses this kind of messy experience which yeah. as as i mentioned with the instagram thing it can it can manifest like that I've never thought about it that way. I don't think I've thought about the global, the, the nuanced differences between the global experience, UX experiences of different technology. I think when you started noticing the difference between like different UX ex- of American or like US based experiences versus EU and now just hearing even about like China has a more stricter policy, like what are some, I guess, policy or changes that you wish US would do? I think they should be a lot more proactive about just like making certain practices not legal. For example, certain deceptive design patterns that are specifically meant to just deceive people to pay more money or give more of their time or data to these companies. Some of these practices, they're like never good. They're they're only like meant for this kind of malicious or annoying purpose and they need to be outlawed. And, And certain, you know, risky applications of AI need to be really restricted. And I think like, you know, we always talk about it as if it's like, oh, but we're not going to be able to innovate. And oh, but sometimes you need to do this kind of stuff. Or you need to allow like these kinds of slightly unethical things in order for like this innovation to happen and in order for in order for businesses to be able to succeed. And I, I think that's kind of bogus. You know, it's mm-hmm. like if you think about like, your local baker in your neighborhood and the baker was like oh well i have to put a little bit of heroin in my croissants because otherwise like how else would i be competitive like no you don't (laughs) if you have to do that you shouldn't be a baker like and so i think we need to start being yeah more more strict about that because the consequences are huge right this is not just impacting us as adults it's impacting children it's impacting elderly folks, you know, vulnerable people who, yeah, when they have to like lose money because of this particular pattern or whatnot. Is there, are there some patterns that you're thinking of as you're saying this, just so like when people are listening, they can look out for those patterns as well? Well, there was a really common example before. It's it's started being, it's been shamed a lot more due to like Harry Brignall's work with calling them out. One of them is the whole like click to subscribe, but call to cancel. So I know the mm-hmm. New York Times did this as well as a couple other uh, sites. But yeah, you could easily buy a subscription to some kind of service or a newsletter or whatever. And you just did that online. But then in order to cancel it, you had to like hop on a phone call with someone like, who was only available from like the hours of like 11 p.m. to like 1 p.m. And if you missed the window, like you're out of luck, which is so annoying. And I also like hate phone calls anyway. So yeah, it's just like, that's really annoying. There's also the slightly less like egregious, but really snarky thing that you see a lot in like those pop-ups when they're like, do you want to subscribe to this newsletter? And you can either say like, yes, or you can say, no, I just want to lose money or no, I'm a loser right. or something mm-hmm. like something mm-hmm. really snarky. And it's, I'm boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's right. a form of emotional, mm-hmm. it's an emotional kind of relation. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 
So it's really annoying and they don't need to be like that. But, and also, for example, another one that I really hate that I still see sometimes is the whole like, oh, there's five other people with this item in their cart. A lot of times it's not true at all. They're just saying that they put a number up there in order to get entice you to feel like, oh, there's some competition. I got to buy this right now. And it's, it's creating this kind of artificial demand scarcity scarcity Mm -hmm. yeah which is really problematic and you know it's 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 even more problematic when you think like okay these practices are happening for us but they're also happening for like kids for example on education apps and i know at the the federal trade commission event around deceptive design patterns in 2021 or as they call it back then dark patterns it had a panel on it after the panel that i was on but the panel was about deceptive design patterns in like educational games like duolingo uses a lot of these patterns and duolingo is used in, in a lot of like by schools and stuff and there's also other education platforms that kids are using that have these kinds of things um, so those those may not be about like purchasing right Ooh. like on duolingo is it like just gamify trying to like over gamify like learning it's like it's the over gamification of learning but also it is the purchasing stuff because um, i remember oh, really? when i was when i was trying to learn swedish through duolingo and <laughs> this reveals a lot because i clearly was not learning it for the right reasons i was just learning it for the streak on duolingo and i made it to like 140 days and then i missed a day and then duolingo had the audacity to be like do you want to pay ten dollars to reinstate your streak. And I thought oh, about it. Wow. For, and yeah, this is not, I, I, they got me. I almost did. I like, thought about it for two seconds and I was like, this is absurd. So imagine like a kid. But they side. understood, you know, mm-hmm. on a human level. Yep. You want to maintain that badge that you've earned. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Exactly. Okay. And yeah, a lot of companies do this. And so it's just like, that's so silly like if you're trying to teach kids or adults or whomever like a language to gamify it to that extent just i mean i understand i I can understand why they decided to do that but i don't think it's right so yeah just because something can be a kpi doesn't mean it needs to be (laughs) exactly exactly and that's the thing it's just like in our industry we're our our kpis our okrs whatever acronym we use about these things they're always focused on the bottom line and we're always we're in this like growth driven industry that's only focused on like okay short-term growth how do we get it what can we do you know in the realm of possibility to allow us to get to like 10 percent increase in whatever you know it's a sad way to kind of operate and and we we use these like metrics as proxies of like oh user engagement is is good is high so that means everyone's loving our product right but then when you think about some of the the products that have really high engagement like cigarettes have great engagement, great retention. And it's not because it's a phenomenal product by any means. And so in design and in tech, we borrow a lot from this kind of like behavioral economic school of thought where we we actually apply these practices and it's normalized and it's encouraged. And we're like, yeah, we should totally change the way that people decide on things and and mold them to become loyal customers in that way. Uh, When it's kind of patronizing and it's, it's like paternalistic and it can be really problematic at times. Going back to our first conversation around like success, mm-hmm. right? And then just bringing, bringing that back here, I feel like a lot of times, whether it's tech or not, businesses often, you know, get birthed from the desire to solve problems, from the desire.
desire to create value. And then I think somewhere down the line, whether it's because of VC funding or like surviving in the market or bringing in revenue, it becomes more about like what will impact those bottom lines. And then thinking about that bottom line, but to an extent where you're kind of losing sight of everything else over OKR, over KPI it to the point where you're not really seeing the bigger picture of what are all the not side effects, but like direct effects you're creating while you're also creating or getting to your KPIs. I'm curious, you know, from your masters and your focus on AI, like what are some policies that you're hoping gets created? Because right now the, the generative AI space is proliferating faster than any policy. So I'm curious, like from your perspective, whether it's policy itself or just guardrails, I'm I'm curious, what would you like to see in place? That is a great question. And I think there are some good stepping stones or starting points that, you know, are happening in like the EU and the UK of really clearly defining like what is harmful AI, like high risk AI, and to ensure that those are not legal to, you know, to ensure that the dissemination of that kind of product or the creation of that kind of product is not okay. And I think that's, we need to see more of that. We need to see more strict regulation. In terms of like regulation aside, what I would really want to see is just like more collaboration between people in policy and those who are building these products, which we have been seeing more and more definitely, but also between, you know, the organizers in communities, right? Like not just folks in tech, but people who are just your your everyday citizen who is also very much impacted by this technology, but maybe doesn't have a kind of platform to talk about it necessarily. So yeah, I think it's, it's a very tricky issue because in some ways like Pandora's box has already been opened and when a lot of these technologies were open source like people can just kind of take it and run with it and and make their own spin off of it and that's tricky it is really tricky and I don't necessarily know if I have like the regulatory panacea to that but I know that we just need to especially in the US we need to do a lot more we need to act a lot faster I think one of the things that you noted is that it we're already so far behind like the developments that's happening in this space and that's been a very big pattern in all of the kind of regulatory history I think in the U.S. for any of our fields. Yeah, especially tech. You know, when we started talking about AI you're really thinking of it through the lens of different exploitations and I think like I totally understand what you mean and especially because there's not a lot of threading and giving credit and acknowledging and erasing Mm -hmm. historical work, right? And oftentimes the people that get erased most are the people that are the most marginalized. Yes. I think like that that whole notion aside, especially because I agree with it, just going to put it aside for a second and just think about like, you know, you just studied, you just did a whole master's on <laughs> artificial intelligence and, and its implications and all the things. I'm curious, like, what are the potentials of this technology of AI that does give you some hope that keeps you inspired? It doesn't have to be about how it's being utilized right now, but like, I'm curious from your perspective, what about AI keeps you inspired, keeps you engaged in, in it? Yeah, I think there are definitely use cases where this technology can be applied in a way that is not, you know, susceptible to the the capitalist market and the logics that come with it. Um, And I've heard about 
you know, AI technology being used in more grassroots capacities. I do not remember what this is called, but I know I, I saw a tweet about this a while back about a group that was using AI technology to kind of preserve indigenous languages. In a, I think it was mm. in New Zealand or something. And it was community driven. It was not like really, so far as I could tell, it was not beholden to any like DC interests or or steering or anything so i think that is really cool i think there are there's a lot of potential for these technologies these emerging technologies to be used by us the community in a way that's a community driven and not driven by investors who are only in it for the money right yeah because we can if we can own this technology ourselves and, and use it to build things that are genuinely helpful for us that is wonderful and i i want to like kind of distinguish like that strand of applied technology that's helpful for the community from the kind of the, the privatized technology that we've seen, like in, you know, ed tech or med tech or whatever. Mm -hmm. A lot of these companies, these private companies are coming to like Europe, for example, and being like, we're a private med tech company and we're going to you know, help you all. But in actuality, they're kind of chipping away, like their business model is chipping away on the public infrastructure that is already there. And it's their their business model is contingent on the failure of these public services provided by the government and the communities and whatnot. So I, I want to distinguish that kind of technology that's being applied for the community in some ways, but from a privatized capacity. And so I think that is what gives me hope. The, the, the former example of what I talked about, of technology that's owned by the people that is not at the whims of this market or of what investors want to say all the time. And that can really just be allowed to serve what we need as, as people, as, as neighborhoods, as, you know, collect communities and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I, I just started Googling the example you said about AI being utilized for uh, to preserve indigenous languages. And it's like preservation it's so the anti of what we're seeing right? of how generative AI especially is being utilized, right? It yeah. almost, it's the complete opposite because I, I would feel like when the, the words we were using earlier is that it could perpetuate erasure, monolithic perceptions, creating a homogeneous narrative. Was your master's inclusive of generative AI? Yeah, we talked about that as well. We covered like the whole gamut. We, at the very end, we could kind of specialize in what we wanted to, to hone in on. And so I focused yeah. on algorithmic content moderation. Oh, uh, say more. Yeah. So, you know, if you use any social media platform, right? You're seeing content from your friends, from whoever you follow, and you're not seeing, I hope at least, a lot of scary content that's violent or you know creepy or like depressing at least a lot of the content that is really egregious has been taken off and it's taken off before you even get a chance to see it and there is someone out there whose job it is to sit at their desk nine hours a day and remove all of those videos and to kind of vet them all so that the platform is safe for users like us, right? And this job for a very long time was done by humans. It still is. And nowadays, like in the last few years, they've just seen this massive shift towards companies that have like AI or algorithmic content moderation, where it's all or not all, but a lot of it is marketed as automated. And it's kind of reinforcing this narrative that like, yeah, we don't really, we're cutting out humans from this so that first of all, they don't have to do this work, but also we can save money, yada, yada, yada. And this, this is kind of a misleading presentation of algorithmic content moderation, because in reality, it still is very much reliant on human labor. And the writer and filmmaker Astra Taylor wrote about this concept in Logic Magazine a while back called photomation, so F-A-U-X-tomation. 
and it, what it encompasses is is the idea of like oh we we market and we have all these gimmicky like AI this everything's automated but it actually belies the human work that's going on behind the scenes and so these algorithmic content moderation companies they're claiming that they have all these automated systems and yet in order to even like run the models that are doing the content moderation they have to have people train those models and that training process is, is extensive and it's just like someone again has to sit there go through all of this footage and be like annotate this is this is something that depicts you know, suicide or, you know, violence in that capacity or whatnot. And so it's still happening. And even worse, and, you know, beyond that, to make it worse, this labor is being distributed in a way that's very reminiscent of like colonial patterns and uh, of, of exploitation, right? And so you see a lot of these workers that are doing this kind of work are based in Kenya or the Philippines or Colombia, etc. And in places that have historically also been very much exploited by Western yeah. companies. And traumatized. And traumatized. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're offsetting this emotional trauma, this emotional labor. And it's, you know, it's to benefit a lot of these companies that are based in the West. So it is this very unfortunate, tricky dynamic that is happening right now and it's something that like we don't really think about it because we don't see it right. happening and well, it's it completely invisible right it's being mm -hmm. erased yeah for artificial content management besides the practice that's being done right now like how do you hope it becomes used because i think you know the, the the thing here is like what you said earlier the pandora's box have, has been opened like mm -hmm. ai isn't going to go back and we're not going to stop using generative ai either mm -hmm. i think policies might change policies might start regulating what gets done and i'm curious as it relates to ai being used for content management like what's a change you want to see that's a great question i think part of it has to do with just better rights for these workers that are you know working for pennies and i know recently in africa the first african like content moderators union was created i think like a month ago because there was this company called sama ai which is a you know b corp company that for a while were hiring contractors in Kenya to provide content moderation for Facebook and OpenAI as well. And these workers were getting paid so little and their like mental health policies were not great at all at the company. And then when workers tried to speak out about it, there was a lot of retaliation. And one of the, the former colleagues who was working in the Kenyan office, Daniel Moton, he actually ended up suing Sama and Meta. And so there was a lot of, you know, organizing that was happening around that time. And finally, they formed this union. And I think that's such an encouraging step forward. And I, I hope to see more of these companies compensating these people. And also another thing that I'm thinking about too, just in, in Sarah Roberts' book, um, Behind the Screen, which is, it's about content moderation. In the end, she talks about, she's like, well, one obvious solution, obviously, is to just limit the amount of content that we have on these platforms. Because right now, the, pro the problem is that we're just inundated with the content, right? Of course, we could just limit it, cap it, and then astutely observes that that is very hard to do. And if they do care about it, it's mostly to just cover their own, to prevent themselves from getting into trouble with compliance stuff. What's what's something you wish more people knew or used or understood? Yeah, I think maybe something that's been on my mind that I've been just having a lot of conversations with my friends about is just the 
the unlearning that I think we're all doing yeah. right now about bringing it back to almost this like success thing that we talked about yeah. or about like, you know, our jobs and about meaning. And I think for me, this really transformative book that I read recently was by David Graeber, who passed away a couple of years ago, called Bullshit Jobs. And he, he's a brilliant anthropologist. And he was writing about how a lot of these jobs that we have are just bullshit. They're they're pointless. And he he cites like people like corporate you know, lawyers and hedge fund managers and, and like software engineers in some capacity. And he contrasts that with like the important people who are teachers and people that work in like as nurses or, and basically everyone that was a frontline employee during the pandemic, mm -hmm. right? And we really saw that. Like he wrote this book before the pandemic happened, but we really saw that distinguishing like line between who's actually providing meaningful work that would make a difference to our day-to-day, -day, you know, existence and whose jobs were kind of just like there. And I think one of the things that my friends and I have been talking about recently, just given the whole state of like the tech world, right? With the, the spate of layoffs, and like a lot of a lot of workers, a, a lot of employees at these companies who thought they were in this family and, and in this like, you know, amazing atmosphere that like wanted to care about everything and yada, yada, yada. But then being laid off like that, you know, I think it's just a, a wake up call for a lot of people. Of like, yeah. OK, these jobs are jobs and they're going to help you pay your paycheck. But, you know, it's not really anything more than that. And sometimes it's worse than that because you're working somewhere that might be causing problems. But yeah, that's what's been on my mind. And I think for me, I encourage people to kind of interrogate the work that they're doing and to interrogate the kinds of ideas of success that they might have that, you know, where do they come from and what makes your job fulfilling and meaningful as opposed to a bullshit job? And if it is a bullshit job, what path would you actually want to take? I mean, it's such a tough tension, right? Because to your point, in order to even interrogate that, you have to do enough unlearning yeah. to even realize that that might be a situation you're in. And then I think the role of privilege comes in because I think like even yes. if you have a bullshit job, you may not have the privilege to choose otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think your your cultural upbringing, your household upbringing, plus the privilege or lack thereof, all of those kind of have a huge effect on the decisions that might come out of that interrogation. Okay, so I'm going to do a rapid fire. Yes. So I'm going to do a bunch of questions and you'll just answer them. Really <laughs> Sounds good. Um, okay. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Introvert. What helps you stay curious? Reading. How do you nurture play in your life right now? I play with my dog a lot and I go outside. Okay. What's one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now? My friends and family. Are they spread out across different time zones? Yeah, or? different time yeah. zones, different continents. But even my friends in Stockholm, I'm really grateful for them. If you could go back and give that 18-year-old self one piece of advice, whether that 18-year-old, I don't know if that 18-year-old was pursuing law <laughs> or had already changed courses, but what's one piece of advice you would give that cat? Follow your gut. Listen to your body and listen to your feelings because they reveal the truth to you often way earlier than your your logic does what is something you've been doing recently to nurture your mental health resting a lot i recently read trisha hersey's book rest is resistance and i am trying to internalize it as much as i can what helps you rest like what helps you make sure you are resting is there like a boundary you're setting like yeah 
Yeah, and definitely boundaries with, you know, work of like, when am I closing my laptop? Sometimes even penciling in time, like I'm going to go to the park and spend time with a friend for this amount of time and, and, and making sure that I do it and I don't fill it up with errands or anything. But yeah. What's something you couldn't do without in your career? It can be anything from a routine, a person, a service, or an object. What's something that I couldn't do in my career? What's something you couldn't do without in your career? Like it had a significant impact in your career. A routine or a person or a service, an object. Mm. Oof. That is a great question. I think I want to credit my first mentor, actually. He really pushed me to kind of interrogate some of these systems in which we work and operate in. And he was largely the reason why I created the Design Ethically Project. Yeah, his name is Nathaniel Axios, or he goes by Nax. Uh, He's awesome. If you weren't in the role that you're in right now, what would you be doing? And when you answer that, maybe share what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I actually love that this is how it panned out because I'm realizing more and more like when we talk about each other, like ourselves, especially in the US, the first thing you say about yourself is, hi, my name is Kat. And what do I do? This is who I am. And why is that the defining question? Why is that the defining piece of information about who we are as a human? Yeah, it's wild. So I appreciate that that actually didn't come up at all. But I am a senior product designer in a tech company in Stockholm. And if I wasn't doing that, I think I might just be in school full time. I have loved my master's program. And it's made me realize how much I just love the process of like researching, writing, even teaching at times. It's so fun. You know, this podcast is called Up Next in Tech. And I'm curious, what do you think is up next for us as we think about artificial intelligence, specifically uh, generative AI? Mm. Uh, So I think kind of like what we were saying before about exploitation, I think we're going to see more of it, unfortunately. I think that's it's just the natural course of how our, our current system works. But what I hope to see is more of that kind of community organizing of people coming together and saying, this is not okay. Speaking out, whistleblowing, grouping together, unionizing, you know, like that is so cool. I joined my first union last spring and the union culture in Sweden, also very different from the U.S. Like it's a lot more extensive here. Almost everyone's in a union, basically. And, you know, in the U.S., we're just starting to hear about unions forming at some of these tech companies, which is really exciting. And I want to see more of that. I want to see people come together in solidarity to demand for rights, not only for themselves, but for, you know, the environment and and for just uh, all of the people that are affected by the technology that we're making. So, yeah. You know, as you said that, it made me think, like, even the concept of unionizing has gone through the same impact that we've been talking about, how, like, Due to capitalism and the U.S.-centric culture, unions get a bad rep, right? Yeah. Like you, you unionize because something is bad, right? Mm-hmm. And and it must be so bad that we have to unionize versus what I'm hearing from you about EU is like, no, everyone should be in a union. Yes. Advocating and understanding your rights is just like an expectation versus exactly. in the U.S., I think the expectation is that you just are a worker bee. You know, exactly. you are loyal to the company that you work in. You think it's a family. You know, all those things we just talked about. So 
It's just interesting. I don't think I've ever thought about unions yeah. under that same umbrella too. And there's a reason for that. And, and mm-hmm. it was through like the Reagan era and also in the UK during the Thatcher era, a lot of policies like neoliberal policies that were crafted to inherit, to give unions a bad rep and to make them seem more outdated. And like they, it really eroded the amount of unions that existed. And also like in tech, for example, we never had unions in the beginning and they, they kind of use this whole guise of like, oh, you work in tech, you have a foosball table, you have swag, you have free meals. Why are you complaining to, to kind of serve as a distraction? But you are allowed to complain. Like we, as workers, we are allowed to speak up and, and ask for better treatment because when we can do that, it makes it better for everybody. So yeah, I think it's important to, to not forget that kind of history that we have and how unions, like had they not been eroded by intentional planning and policymaking, they would probably still be around in, in a lot higher numbers. Yeah, I feel like now I'm really curious about like the state of unions in the US, like what companies have unions and uh, I'm going to hopefully not butcher their name, but there's a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization that's all about labor unions and they are trying to see whether or not they can use the technology behind DAO infrastructure to mobilize more union work. Mm. That is the extent of my knowledge <laughs> on that topic. Um, but it, it is just something that I remember seeing and I was like really intrigued. So that's what's up next. Who do you think is up next? Who is someone we should all be watching and learning from? There's so many people. Tim Nick Gabriel is obviously a big one for me. She's so inspiring. Trisha Hersey, who I mentioned, she doesn't work in tech, but she is a really great influence in the way that I've been thinking about rest and, and work and grind culture. She's been speaking out about that a lot and kind of playing into this idea of like deprogramming ourselves from this hyped up culture. Uh, so I, those are the two that come to my mind at the moment. So as we kind of wrap up and close out, you know, where can people go to learn more about you or support your work? Yeah, so there's uh, designethically.com and it's a free framework and toolkit on that website. Um, so if you're ever curious about ways that your product team, if you work in tech, can better intervene or interrogate what you're building, there's some exercises that you can do in, in that website. But yeah, otherwise, like you can follow me on Twitter. I have been doing, I'm mostly like a retweeter nowadays it's honestly too much emotional <laughs> and, and you know labor to kind of yeah. dive into the other stuff but yeah okay you know i know you're wrapping up your masters right now what can people expect from you next if you have that answer or what are you exploring next I, I think I want to continue on learning more and I have no idea what that's going to look like. I've realized I'm not a person that does the five-year plan as in I have tried many a five-year plan. I've tried drafting many of them and I never fulfill them. Uh, so I, I realized I just need to go with the flow and see what happens because for example, my five-year plan from five years ago did not include moving to Sweden so <laughs> or going to grad school. So yeah. yeah. I know we covered a lot of different topics. I'm curious, is there anything else that we haven't covered cover that you really want to say before we close out? I think for me, just, I would say keep on learning and unlearning. There's so much to learn about 
the world that's just not in our bubbles that we currently live in. And there's a lot to unlearn, a lot to kind of drop and let go just from things from the past that maybe aren't true anymore or were never true to begin with. And I think it's a very, it can be a very uncomfortable process, but to be okay with it and to be forgiving and to keep on trying in it. I, I, I love that. I think, you know, unlearning looks so different in every stage of our lives and you might unlearn something new today and then have to unlearn that in a different context three years yeah. from today because yeah. it shows up so differently in different contexts. Um, so I really love that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kat, for spending this time with me, for being on this podcast. Really appreciate you sharing all the things, your journey, your experience, your point of view. Um, and yeah, thank you. This has been so fun. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. You too. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this conversation today. If you liked what you heard, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help more people discover the show. Really appreciate you joining us today. And be sure to hit subscribe, leave a comment, and come back next week so we can keep exploring what's up next in tech and shape our collective future together. Until then, stay curious.